We have been walking on a journey through the book of 1 John. 1 John is a book in the Bible at the very end that we call an epistle. And what an epistle is, what it means is simply that it was a letter written by someone who followed God and it was written to the church, a specific church most likely, but then it was taken from that church and it was circulated throughout the known world of that time so that believers from all over the place could read the message that was written there. And John, as he wrote this epistle to the church that he was writing to, was dealing with a couple of very specific things. They were listening to false teachers. They were hearing teaching and doctrine that was not helpful for them. In fact, it was teachings that were sometimes leading them in the wrong direction. And more importantly than that, the people who were sharing this this teaching with them were not living lives that reflected the love and the grace and the mercy of God. They were not living what they were talking. And so John essentially writes this letter to kind of get them back on the right track. And so as we talked about the last few weeks, the first thing that John did was he kind of answered some questions about Jesus and clarified who Jesus was and what he did for us. And in week two, we talked about sin and the impact that it has on our lives. And John did that because he knew that there were issues in the lives of those who were teaching all of the falsehoods that these people were believing, and he knew that sin was kind of the part of that problem, and he wanted the people to be able to identify what sin was doing in their lives. Finally, last week, we kind of jumped into the main part of the book where John gives us three tests to bring clarity that we can first use on ourselves. Now, I heard somebody say over the weekend, we went and, and we listened to a speaker at General Assembly, and they said there are, um, let's see, there are flashlight moments and there are picture moments, or camera moments. There are flashlight moments. A flashlight you shine on somebody else, a camera you take a picture of yourself. Maybe it was mirror, I don't remember. I'm messing it all up. Anyway, the idea here is that the first person that we use these tests on is ourselves to determine, am I walking the way that I should walk? Am I living the life that God has called me to live? Am I living as a child of God in the light, as John says, or am I living in darkness? But the second person that that we're supposed to use these tests on or that they were supposed to use them for were the people who were teaching and leading them astray. They said every teacher, John is trying to help them understand that every teacher that teaches, you ought to shine the light of these tests on them to make sure that they're living the very same thing that they're teaching. And so John gives us three tests. Last week we talked about the obedience test, the the moral test, excuse me. And as I explained last week, what John does is he kind of mentions one of the tests and then he goes on to the next one, then he goes on to the next one and then he circles back and he hits the first one again and then the second one again and then he circles back yet again on a couple of them. And so what we're doing is we're looking at each of the tests and so we're gonna be jumping around a little bit in John, 1 John chapter two and then we're also gonna be in chapter three and we're also gonna be in chapter four because in all three of those chapters, John circles back on this idea and we're gonna kind of walk through and look at it together. And again, I'll issue the disclaimer um, just so that you kind of know where we're headed. If you're looking for three concise points today, probably not going to happen. This is more of an exegetical message. We're going to walk through the text and we're going to let the text speak. So get your pencils out and hopefully you can take some good notes. Um, So let's take a look at first and foremost, um, 1 John 2, 7 through 11. And again, today we're talking about love or the social test, as I like to call it, the Jesus test, because Jesus talked so very much about the importance of love, and we're going to discover that in just a moment. In 1 John 2, 7, he says this, Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have had from the very beginning. 
This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. Now, I want to stop right there for just a second. Amy, you can leave that scripture up there if you want to, because I don't think I divided this one. Um, But let's just stop there for a minute and talk about this. John is presenting to them a new commandment that is also old, or he literally says this really isn't a new commandment, but he's essentially making it new by the way that he's treating it. Um, What does he mean by um, they've had this command from the very beginning? Now, it's kind of a, a source of some question in my mind. What did John mean by that? Is this a commandment that has been around since the beginning of time? Or is this a commandment that John is simply saying, remember when you first came to know Christ, I taught you this, and you should well remember that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, that love is important, because I taught you this back then. And I think in some ways it's both true. I'm sure that John shared with them at the beginning of their pilgrimage Jesus' teachings on this whole idea of love. But I also believe that in the sense of it being around from the very beginning, you could also say that love was God's plan from the very beginning of time. Now, there are people who want to segregate the Bible into sections. Well, the Old Testament was where we see the judgment of God. You know, God was severe. He, he seemed to punish everybody. There was all this war going on, and he was constantly trying to get the nation of Israel to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and some of those things are not things that we really like to talk about today because they were living in a time that was far more brutal than our time. They were living in a time where the children of Israel were trying to carve out space among nations that would just as soon kill them as look at them. And they were trying to find that space that God had reserved for them. And so there's a lot in the Old Testament that is difficult sometimes for us to read. But if you look carefully, I think you will see that from the very beginning of God's story and the very beginning of the story of the earth, all God ever wanted was for us to see him for who he really is. And guess what one of the descriptors is of God? God is love. It's right here in the text. We're going to read it like three times, I think, today alone. God is love, and I believe that he has intended from the beginning of time to show us that he is love. If you look at the Old Testament law codes that that, that were given to the Israelites, they basically all define how you are to treat your neighbors and your family and your friends and everybody around you with the love and respect that will allow a society to be able to thrive together without chaos breaking out. Now the problem is this. When the Jews got these codes and these laws, they believed that they were only to treat each other that way and that they didn't necessarily have to look at people that were outside the nation of Israel in the same way. Now, I think there's several places you could make a case that that wasn't the way God intended it. Because if you really look carefully at the stories in the Old Testament, there are two or three places where God weaves people from outside of the nation of Israel into the story of Israel, and some of those people who weren't even uh, you know, part of that lineage ended up becoming part of the lineage of who? Jesus. It's incredible. I'm not going to go into detail because I don't have time, but if you take Chris Mosier's Wednesday Bible study class on the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure she will get to those eventually. And it'll be fun. You'll get to study those. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God at at multiple times trying to help Israel to understand what it is that he expects of them because his goal for Israel was that they would help reveal him 
to the nations. And yet Israel over and over again failed at that. And so if you look at the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end, I don't believe in the Old Testament God was all about judgment and suddenly Jesus comes along and changes the story. No, what Jesus did was he clarified. He helped us understand better what all of the Old Testament was about. And so when John says that this is an old commandment, he's absolutely right because I believe it's been around since the beginning of time. But when Jesus came, Jesus kind of renewed it. He, he made it new. And, and the way that he did that is, is that Jesus said loving God and loving each other were the sum total of all of the law and the prophets. Again, I'm not gonna get, take the time to, to share um, scripture references with you, but when Jesus was asked, he said, love God, love your neighbor. These are the most important commandments. In fact, the whole law and the whole prophets, all of the things that have been written up until now can be summarized in this law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now for the Jews, that was a game changer because the Jewish religious leaders had created so many laws and so many rules and so many regulations that you couldn't possibly follow them all. And so let's just say this, guilt was very prominent back then, right? They use guilt like a superpower. My wife has learned to do that. She uses guilt like a superpower sometimes. Sometimes she has me feeling guilty for things I didn't even do. Amen? Any of you men in that same boat? There's, there have been times she watched a Hallmark movie and got mad at me for something that the guy on there did. Made me feel guilty that the guy on the TV did that. And if you think this sounds familiar, yes, I stole it from a comedian. Go, go look him up if you want to. But it's true. My, you know, sometimes guilt is one of those things that we use as a motivator. And it, it's kind of like a superpower sometimes in the life of my wife. But listen, the Jews used it to the nth degree to hold power over the common people because only the official Jewish rabbis and things had enough time to really focus on the law enough to follow it. And therefore, everybody else was somehow under them. And that's how they made him feel. But when Jesus came along, he said, look, all of that other stuff that's written is all fine and good, but listen, it's all summarized in this one statement, love God and love others. If that's your heart's desire, all that other stuff will take care of itself. So if you want to be good with God, if you want to, you know, the easy button to, to be good with God and to know that you're in relationship with him, love God and love your neighbor and everything will fall into place. Now you can imagine the Jews were very unhappy with that teaching because it took away their authority and their guilt and their power that they held over people. But Jesus clarified for them. Jesus also showed them how to love by sacrificing himself. He showed them just how far love must be willing to go by giving everything that he had on the cross of Calvary for you and I. So, so he, he clarified how far we are to go. He also described the scope of their love in the story of the Good Samaritan. And again, I, I preach on the Good Samaritan, I think, at least eight times a year. It seems like he shows up in a lot of my stories because it's such a great picture that God gave us, that Jesus gave us, of who is our neighbor. Because again, the Jews decided that their neighbor was the people that they liked, <laughs> the people who were like them. You know, other Jews, people in their family, people they agreed with. And you know what? I think we're a lot like that today. But Jesus made it very clear. It's not necessarily that. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches us the lesson primarily that sometimes it's the very person that we would least like to love that we need to treat as our neighbor. And he did that by making a Samaritan, whom the Jews hated, the hero of the story. There's another one you can look up and study some more on your own if you haven't heard that story. And so Jesus renewed this command to love one another and made it new even though it was an old command. 
He says at the end of the part we just read that they're already living it. And I, I wonder to myself, was he serious? Were they actually doing it? Were they, were they actually living it out? Or was he just trying to be prophetic, hoping that they would live up to the standard that he just gave them credit for? We may never know. But most likely he was preparing them for what comes next. Because what comes next are some pretty harsh words. Let's pick it up in verse 9, where he says this. If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer... That person is still living in darkness. Boy, that, that is a sharp test. If anyone, let me read it again. If anyone claims I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go having been blinded by the darkness. And so, essentially, John goes on and he gives us this example, and he loves to use word pictures, and we've already kind of talked about how light and darkness appear in Scripture as symbols of righteousness versus um, sin and unrighteousness. And so he gives us an example. If someone claims to be in the light but hates someone, they are living in the darkness. In other words, loving is living in the light, and it also protects us from causing others to stumble. Listen, God is love. And if you say you are God's but you don't love, then you're a very poor example of who God is. If God is love and we claim to be his children, we claim to be living in his light, but we as believers refuse to love each other, then the picture that the world is seeing of God through us is an inaccurate picture. Do you get me? That's why people stumble. And quite frankly, that might be the sole reason that most of the people who are outside of the church have no interest in getting inside the church. Why people don't want to follow Jesus? Because they look at us who are supposed to love each other and they often see things that are not love. Amen? I mean, I'm talking about all the other churches, not this one, right? They see Christians who fight with each other. They see Christians who disagree not in a friendly manner, who speak the truth but don't do so with love. They see Christians who would just as, just as, as, as much write off a person who disagrees with them than try to start a conversation and build a relationship with someone who disagrees with them. They don't see the love of God. And when they look at us and they, they, they hear God is love and they look at us and they see that we're not living lives of love. It is a stumbling block to those around us. To hate is to live and to walk in darkness. You don't know where you're going. You've been blinded by the darkness. And I think the reason that John ends that, adds that on to the end, such a person does not know the way to go and they have been blinded by the darkness, is he's essentially saying to them, listen, these teachers that you've been listening to, they're stumbling around in the dark. Why would you follow them? If a person is not filled with love and they're not living in the light, then they're living in the darkness and they don't know where God is headed, therefore they can't lead you, so why would you follow them? I'll tell you what, we do that today, don't we? We follow some people that are stumbling around in the darkness. How many of you have somebody you really admire on social media? They call them influencers these days and I think it's a bunch of hooey, to be perfectly honest. Because the, a lot of times the only influencing that's being done is absolutely in the wrong direction, amen? 
And I'm not just picking on social media because I'm old now. I like social media. I enjoy it sometimes. I find some good stuff there. But let me tell you something. Some of the people my kids think are influencers, I'm thinking, I sure hope not. I hope they're not influencing you because they're, they're, they got the wrong message. Listen, we follow people today at a whim. You know, some of you would take a sports figure and, and hold them up on a pedestal. Well, if they said it, it must be true. How many times have you seen the memes on Facebook and you see people that can barely form a sentence in an interview and they ascribe some genius quote to that person and you're thinking, at least if you're me, you're thinking, there is no way that knucklehead put those words together and said them, right? How many of you know that 90% of the memes are wrong, you know? The one that said, you know, th- there's one that's really funny that says Abraham Lincoln said something about cell phones. You guys don't see the, you don't see the, hello, anybody there? No, not true. Listen, who are we following? We vote for politicians who are stumbling around in the darkness, according to this text. And we justify it by saying they can make us wealthy. They can improve our economy. They can do all of these great things for us, and so we follow them because of what we think they can do for us. But in reality, according to the standard that I see, even though they may claim to be followers of Jesus, if they're not living in the light, and part of that is loving their neighbor, they're really stumbling around in the darkness, which means you are depending on a blind person (laughs) to get you where you think you want to be. How stupid is that? I mean, how, um, there's a better word that I can't think of any. It's stupid. <laughs> it's just dumb. Listen, if we're both in the dark and you got your hand on my shoulder and you're inspecting me to get you through safely, it's not going to end well. Now, if I have the light and I can see where I'm going, then you should follow me. But listen, many of the people that we follow are proving that they don't have the light. We shouldn't follow them either. Just as the people in John's time shouldn't be listening to these false teachers, there are people we shouldn't be listening to. Let's move on. 1 John 3, um, he circles back on this topic in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and kind of hits it again. And again, he says this, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. I think that's like the third time he said that. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and and killed his brother. And, And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now again, let's stop for a second. I want to clarify Cain and Abel. Hopefully some of you have heard that story. It's from the first part of Genesis, very beginning of the Bible. Cain and Abel were the first two children recorded from Adam and Eve. And uh, again, the Old Testament class, she will tell you that they probably weren't the only kids Adam and Eve had, but they are the ones that are mentioned because of the situation that developed. And what it was is that Cain and Abel were asked to bring offerings before the Lord, and Abel brought an offering that was acceptable and pleasing to God. We don't know all the details of why that was, but we do know that they brought it. he brought a pleasing sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, brought something that apparently was not up to par. It, it, it seems implicated in the, or it seems... I can't, I can't form words today. It seems like it's there in the text. I'll just say it that way. That there was an expectation that was made upon him that he chose not to follow. And so he brought an offering that was not good. And so God basically said to Abel, I accept your offering. And Cain, I, I don't accept your offering. And Cain got angry because nobody wants their brother to outdo them. Amen? 
That's a joke, but you can, you can just sit there if you want. I mean, I, I had two brothers. There was no way I was letting them get the upper hand. But listen, Cain's anger with his brother turned into hatred. And hatred turned into vengeance. And vengeance turned into what? Murder. And Cain basically took his brother out in a field and bashed his head in. The, the very first murder that ever took place on the earth that we know of. And so John is saying, don't be like Cain. Don't, don't act like Cain. Don't be a Cain. And you're, you're saying to me, I know in your head, dude, I would never kill anybody. I don't know. You ever seen Dateline? <laughs> it's basically a whole show about murdering people. I don't know. I, and again, this is from a comedian, but this stuff is all true, I'm telling you. I, I watch a lot of comedians. Dateline is a whole show. It's like a how-to on how to kill your spouse. It's ridiculous. If you ever see anybody watching Dateline and they're taking notes, you need to call me immediately because <laughs> it's not right. But, you know, we all think there's no way I would ever do that. But listen, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is teaching the practicum of all the stuff he's trying to show them, he says, not only, um, you know, can, can you sin when you actually take the action, but he said, listen, if you hold anger in your heart toward another person, what does he say? He said, it is as if you have already murdered them in your heart. Why is that? Because the seeds in our heart, mur murder begins as anger. It begins as a thought. It begins as a feeling. Murder begins as anger. It develops into jealousy. It, it, it can continue into rage. And if left unchecked, murder beco um, uh, anger becomes murder if we're not careful. And so Jesus is basically saying when, when he says that, that if you start being angry with someone and you hold on to that anger, murder is probably right around the corner. It's as if you've already done it. So when we think about all of this stuff, we need to make sure that we are not allowing those thoughts to dwell within us because the anger itself is just as bad for us and for them as the murder. He says, if you do what is right, the world will hate you because righteousness is countercultural. Most people don't do the right thing by nature. They just don't. And if they do, a lot of times, if they do, it's for the wrong reasons, right? Uh, they, you know, it, it's, it's easy to see sometimes, and sometimes it's not as easy to see. Now, certainly there are times when, when people choose to do the right thing, and I, I'm not saying that everybody is only evil continually. Otherwise, we'd probably have another flood. But there are times when you can just see it in the people around you that sometimes the only reason they do the right thing is for the wrong reason. Righteousness, doing the right thing is countercultural. And if you do the right thing most of the time, there will be people that will hate you. But if the heart, if their heart is hardened against God, they have no other choice really. Now, I believe the best way to turn them is to keep on loving them. And maybe, just maybe, they'll come around. And so he gives us this example to continue to talk about it. Let's pick it up in verse 14 again. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Now, first he's talking about light to darkness. Now he's talking about from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. Again, he's just echoing what he's already said. And you know that murderers have no, don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is. Listen to this. Because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Okay, now he's getting down to brass tacks. 
First he says, don't be a murderer like Cain. And everybody said, amen. <laughs> and then he said, you know, if you know a poor person and they could use some money and you have money, you should probably give them some. And everybody went, oh my. I don't know about that one, John. I mean, not killing people, I think that's pretty, pretty much a given. Most of us would shy away from killing most of the time. I mean, other than Phil, but he doesn't kill people, just animals. It's easy not to murder, but you know what it's not easy to do? Share. Especially in a society where we already feel like our stuff is being taken and given to everybody else by the government. I, I know, I feel it too, friends. The frustration is real, I get it. But that doesn't change the fact that there are people in our backyard that have needs that we could meet. And probably a lot of times without even really inconveniencing ourselves. And yet we choose not to. John puts them on the same level, those two things. Listen, if you don't show love to a brother or sister in need, then you're living in the darkness. How can God's love be in that person? Boy, I'll just let you chew on that for a while. Dear children, he goes on to say, let's not merely say that we love each other. <laughs> let us show the truth by our actions. That's the test. You can say it all you want, but until you're willing to do it, the world doesn't believe it, and neither should we. And so again, he's kind of in this text using love and hate um, as, as life and death. You know, he, he basically is changing up the analogy a little bit, but it's the same message over and over again. If we love, we have passed from death to life. If there is no love in us, then we are still living in death. Our example is Jesus, and he gave up his life for us, all of us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. All of us, every single one. And we should be willing to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Another example, if you have enough and you see a brother or sister in need but show no compassion, God's love is not in you. Don't just say it, do it. Finally, we wrap it up in verse 4, or chapter 4 rather. 1 John 4, 7-12 says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. And some of you might recognize these words because there was a song that I learned in Sunday school that basically says exactly this. See if you can figure it out, and if you do, just start singing it out loud for the fun of it. I know you're not going to do that, but I, I figured I'd throw it out there. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his son, and one and only son, excuse me, into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Again, he gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, continue to love one another because he's assuming they're doing it. And I hope that they were. And I hope that you are. I hope that I never, ever have to say, hey, church, you need to start loving each other. I hope that I can always say, just keep doing what you're doing. Love the people around you. 
He begins with that. He says, continue in love. And then he states it again. God is love, real love. Uh, what real love is, is real love sent his son so we could have eternal life. Real love sacrificed his son so that, so that our sins could be taken away. If God loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. The test is this. If we love God, God lives in us. And, if we, and his love can be seen by all. It is brought to full expression in us. And again, what that means is this. God's love is seen by the world when his people live it out. I wish we could just point to God. I wish he'd show his face in the sky and we could say, there he is, that's what he looks like, this is what he did, and he could just show them the whole story of everything that he did. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Like a giant movie screen in the sky where God just comes down, tells them the whole story, and everybody in the world sees it at once and we don't have to worry about it anymore. But that's not gonna happen. You know why? Because Jesus gave us the responsibility of being little Jesuses <laughs> to everybody that we meet. His message is to be communicated to the world through us. And if we refuse to embody love just as God is love, then the world is not seeing a correct picture of who God is in us. I know I said this at the beginning. I'm not senile and repeating myself. But John repeated it three times. And I'm going to keep repeating it until I see it happening. Because, friends, we, we think that the measure of holiness that the world is looking for is how good we are or how prosperous we are or how cool our buildings are or how eloquent our preacher is <coughs> or how entertaining our music is. Good grief. What the world is looking for is somebody that looks like God. And he looks like love. Do we? Do you? Do you look like him? Do you pass the test? What does your love for others show the world? Does it show them God? Or does it show them some imperfect version? Do you look like God? When I was a kid in school, I've told you this before, I went to a Baptist school, and again, I talk about other denominations not out of any disrespect. I have a great deal of respect for the people who ran that school, but they were different. They, they were very conservative, ultra-conservative, like enforced six-inch rule conservative. Like it was kind of ridiculous at times. And to go to that school, there was a hair code and a dress code. The girls could put their hair any way they wanted. Totally wasn't fair. But us boys... We had to have it off the collar and off the ears. We weren't allowed to have long hair. Do you know why we, we couldn't have long hair? Because of the hippies in the 70s. It's all their fault. The schools that I was a part of were all born out of a movement in the late 70s, early 80s, where a bunch of Christian schools started, and they decided that at that moment in time that if Christians had long hair, then they, the world wouldn't be able to tell us from, from them. And so they decided at that moment that we had to have short hair. I thought, I think that's very unfair, don't you? So what I did is I cut it all off and I spiked it and I slipped the sides back, you know, like everybody did in the 80s. How many of you did that in the 80s? Okay, it was just me then. Anyway, uh, so you know what they did? They came and pulled me out of class after I got that haircut and they took me in the office and said, dude, what's up with the hair? Okay, they didn't say it that way, but your hair um, doesn't necessarily meet our our code. And I'm like, off the ears, off the collar, tapered. Well, yes, but <laughs> what, he, what they essentially said to me in that moment was, you don't look like one of us. 
You see, we had to dress a certain way, wear our hair a certain way, behave ourselves perfectly in public, and make sure that, you know, we were doing all the right things, talk a certain way, always be calm. They had the the right idea, but in the wrong direction. They believed that Christians should stand out in a crowd, which I agree with wholeheartedly. But no one cares what your hair looks like. And no one cares how you're dressed anymore. And quite frankly, nobody even cares about your conversation or your speech or whether you sound like a Christian, look like a Christian, or whatever else. In fact, if you look like a stereotypical Christian, you're more likely to get negative attention than positive. I absolutely believe that Christians should stand out in a crowd because of the way that we love and care for the people around us. People should be able to see us coming from a mile away because we're the ones that step in to help when someone needs it. Because we love each other no matter what, even though I may not agree with your politics or your antics or something that you did 100 years ago. We should stand out because of our holiness and because of our love, not because of our outfits or our haircuts. I mean, why didn't God just make us all bald if that's what he really wanted? I see he's gotten to some of you. I'm not quite there yet. That's the first hand raise I've ever gotten in church. You keep doing that, Mark. I might preach for an hour anyway. Listen, if we love, you are living in the light. Let me just summarize this for all of you. If you love, you are living in the light of life because you know God. If you do not love, then you are still living in the darkness, which is humanity's natural state, by the way. The darkness of death because you do not know God. Later today, we're going to have some people step into this little hot tub over here, and uh, they're going to get baptized as a public declaration of the fact that they want to follow Jesus, and I'm so excited for that. But that public declaration is not the end. It's the beginning. The real test will come when somebody says something to them that they don't like or when They're tempted to do something they shouldn't, and they're going to continue, hopefully, for the rest of their lives, passing these tests that John gave the church because they live lives that are worthy of the calling that God placed on them. And I'm so excited to see it happen. But I want you to forget about them for a minute and just look at you. In fact, bow your heads, close your eyes um, for just a moment. I want you to consider something with me, and the worship team's going to come as I do this so we can close with a song. But I want you to just consider... What do I look like? Do I look like God in the way that I love those around me? Do I love others the way that Jesus did? Am I willing to be sacrificial in the way that I love, especially when there's a brother or sister that may be in need and I have the ability to help? Do I pass the test? Not the test of whether or not I've ever, you know, committed some egregious sin like murder, but the test of am I willing to love my neighbor as myself and not allow them to become marginalized simply because I don't have the time or the inclination to be a part of their lives. Where do you stand? Give this test to yourself right now. Am I walking in the light or am I living in darkness? 
I believe that the only hope of the world is Jesus and that it is him in him that we boast. And we're going to sing a song right now as you contemplate that and then we'll close. of Jesus All is promised One for me When he paid the highest ransom Once for always For my
Father in heaven, take us from this place today willing and able and looking for opportunities to love our neighbor as ourself. And as we do that, God, we know that it is the best way we can show that we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.